six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. And good afternoon. Welcome to this, the Thursday edition of A Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. Our guest today is the investigative reporter and war correspondent Jeremy Scahill. Jeremy is a senior correspondent and editor-at-large and one of the three founding editors of The Intercept Electronic Journal. He's the author of the award-winning titles Dirty Wars, The World is a Battlefield, and Blackwater, The Rise of the World's Most Powerful Mercenary Army. He has reported from Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, Yemen, Nigeria, the former Yugoslavia, and elsewhere across the globe. He also has served on the, as the national security correspondent for The Nation and Democracy Now. Today we'll be drawing from his recent intercept piece entitled, This is Not a War Against Hamas. Jeremy Scahill, welcome back. to It's been a long time. Welcome back to WORT. Oh, it's good to be home, Alan. Yeah, you, you're far, far away from me. I should tell our, our listeners, we through the wonders of the Internet, we're talking to Jeremy all the way from southern Germany. Jeremy, appearing in the Intercept site, on the Intercept site on December 11th, your analysis of the Israeli war still raging in Gaza had the headline, This is Not a War Against Hamas. The mere title, of course goes counter to every, everything, official Israeli sources, the U.S. corporate media system regularly parroting the line, have been saying nonstop. In the, in the main supported by the White House and the State Department, that official line states that the war is being fought to root out Hamas. But if the ongoing attack on Gaza is not about destroying Hamas, Hamas excuse me, then what else is its purpose, in your estimation? What are the most most of us missing that might help cut through the fog of war? Great question, Alan, and a big question, and and it may may take a little bit of um, of history to to adequately answer it. I mean, first of all, anyone who has reported on or followed uh, the events in Gaza, particularly since Hamas won elections in two thousand six, knows that Israel has implemented a policy where. Uh, Gaza was effectively turned into uh, what many people refer to as an open-air prison. Um, it was blockaded. Uh, it was sanctioned. The uh, Israelis were in total control of everything um, going in and out uh, of Gaza. The Israelis also implemented a, uh, a regular program of doing what they called mowing the lawn or mowing the grass in Gaza, where there would be regular bombings, regular airstrikes, targeted assassination uh, attempts, many of them successful against a variety of leaders, not just uh, members of Hamas's military wing. I think it's also important to say, you know, the, the term Hamas is being used in, uh, as, as a very broad brush. Um, Hamas is not just the, uh, the armed uh, militants or the armed wing uh, under the uh, leadership of, of a, a guy named Mohammed Daif. Um, Hamas was created in 1987, and in fact, um, Benjamin Netanyahu and his ilk um, did a lot to make sure that Hamas was going to rise in power and authority. Um, in fact, even the New York Times a couple of weeks ago did an expose talking about how Netanyahu specifically um, was keeping a spigot of money from Qatar open to Hamas. And the reason for this uh, was quite clear, and in fact, Netanyahu himself uh, made a statement at the Likud party meetings in 2019 saying that anyone who wants to uh, prevent the establishment of a Palestinian state needs to bolster and fund Hamas. Um, and and the reason for that is not that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu likes the Qasem brigades or uh, has any great affection for Yahya Sinwar, the head of Hamas who spent 22 years in an Israeli prison and speaks fluent Hebrew. Um, it's because Netanyahu wants to make sure that political entities that might gain support and credibility globally um, are not going to achieve power. Um, so October 7th happens, and the Israeli government and the U.S. government projected a narrative to the world that this is the beginning of history, that this is akin to a second Holocaust, and that uh, Israel is fighting for its very existence against a, a, a new iteration of nothing less than the Nazi uh, party and Adolf Hitler's forces. 
I think it's important to remember. And, and you know, Alan, I, one of the things that I love about Wart is that we can take time to do this. Um, but I, th I think that facts uh, truly matter. And the narrative that was uh, that that has become the dominant narrative about what took place on October seventh is that um, Hamas went into Israeli kibbutzes um, and uh, and attacked a music festival of young people and and just um, indiscriminately massacred civilians. Certainly, there were massacres of civilians. Certainly, there were war crimes committed. And certainly uh, the, the uh, people who were affected by it have every right to have accountability for the targeting and killing of their loved ones. But Hamas actually also targeted seven separate military outposts and installations, including one of the most important bases that Israel uses to attack Gaza. And under international law, Hamas has a right to use force uh, to defend its territorial integrity. And so there are very serious, there's a very serious case to be made that uh, Hamas in attacking the Israeli military outposts, that you have to separate that from the, the and I've condemned this, the attacks on the kibbutzes and the attacks on the music festival. Facts also matter when we talk about, was this, can we just say this was Hamas? Yes, Hamas operated it. Hamas planned this for years. Hamas dug tunnels for the purpose of being able to uh, breach the Erez crossing and attack military installations. Palestinian Islamic Jihad also participated in the attacks. Um, rank and file criminals who, who were released from prison in Palestine, uh, in Gaza, also participated in the massacre. So we don't know which particular factions did what thing on October 7th, but we do know this, that the initial Israeli claim was that 1,400 uh, civilians were killed that babies were beheaded, 40 babies were beheaded, that uh, babies were burned alive, put in ovens, et cetera. Let me just read you the statistics that are now the commonly accepted statistics um, in mainstream major Hebrew language Israeli media outlets about what we now understand the death toll to be on October 7th. There were approximately 1,200 Israelis or Israeli residents killed. Of these, 274 were soldiers, 57 were Israeli police officers, 38 were local security guards at the kibbutzes, and 764 were civilians. There was one infant killed that day, according to Israel's own official count, a, a nine-month-old baby named Mila Cohen who was shot while her mother tried to flee and her mother survived. Um, there were roughly uh, a dozen children between the ages of one and nine killed, and there were 36 uh, kids between the ages of 10 and 19 killed. I, I bring this up not to say, oh, this is much, this is nowhere near as bad as anyone thought it was. Um, the killing of civilians is a war crime. The intentional killing of civilians is a war crime. Um, but the narrative that was set on this was comparing it to the Holocaust, comparing this to the Nazi party, and you have the most powerful political figure in the world, Joe Biden, um, continuing to repeat uh, outright lies that not even Benjamin Netanyahu continues to repeat about the events of October 7th. So context matters, history matters. Hamas, part of this operation was aimed at the Israeli military, which you can you know, have a very serious debate about the legal legitimacy of that. And part of it was aimed at civilians, which is unconscionable, unforgivable, and should never be promoted or defended by anyone. And that includes the taking of civilian hostages. So Israel's response to the, the uh, Hamas-led raids on October 7th was to preemptively announce, Yoav Gallant, the defense secretary, the defense minister of Israel, says that we're gonna lay total siege to Gaza. No food, no water, no electricity, shut it down, everything is closed. Benjamin Netanyahu introduces what I think we should call the Amalek doctrine, uh, reference to the Old Testament story um, about getting revenge on the Amalek tribe and going in and slaughtering all women children, infants, animals, they announced their intent to engage in a scorched earth campaign of collective punishment. From the moment those statements were made, Joe Biden should have said, uh-uh, no U.S. support can be uh, offered for such an affair. We support your right to defend yourself. We support your right to have accountability for what happened um, on October 7th, particularly at the kibbutzes and the music festival. Um, but we're not going to get on board with, with what already is being framed using what I think clearly can be called genocidal language. So everything we've seen, Alan, 
um, by some estimates, 25,000. And I think the death tolls are actually, um, everyone talks about how Hamas's numbers are inflated. I actually think the opposite is true because the Hamas numbers are based on people whose deaths or injuries are recorded by hospitals or other medical facilities. There are thousands of people missing. There are thousands of people trapped in rubble. The death toll could be far higher than 20,000 people, including uh, approximately 8,000 children. Um, so the idea that this is a, a, a war against Hamas is a, is a sickening farce. Uh, the, the, there, has, there is an October 7th that has happened uh, every single day uh, in Gaza for the past 10 weeks. You can't claim that this is self-defense. And it, it, and it, it really is um, unforgivable that Joe Biden has served as the most important, most consequential propagandist for the war. You're listening to war correspondent and investigative reporter with The uh, Intercept, Jeremy Scahill. As is our practice here on uh, Public Affair, we'll open up the phone lines at half past the hour at 608-256-2001 if you want to get in with a question, a comment, an observation for Jeremy Scahill. That'll be at 12.30 our time. Jeremy Scahill, you, you began your piece uh this is not a war against Hamas, by asserting that the events of the previous week, this was done on December 11th, should obliterate any doubt that the war against the Palestinians of Gaza is a joint U.S.-Israeli operation. That, too, recasts the current conflict in ways totally contrary to what is a widely held opinion. A joint U.S.-Israeli operation? What makes it so? Well, if, if Joe Biden decided that he was going to cut off uh, additional military uh, assistance to Israel, that the United States was not going to be um, shipping extra tank rounds, get providing intelligence support for the Israelis, showering them with uh, all manner of military political uh, support and an attempt at moral cover, um, this would uh, this would end very, very quickly. Uh, in fact, I'm not. I'm not saying that um, as a guessing game or because I think it might be true. We we know that in 2021, when Joe Biden supported Netanyahu, uh, Netanyahu's attack against Gaza, it hit a point where the civilian death toll was rising. Um, Joe Biden uh, calls Bibi and says Benjamin Netanyahu and says, "Okay, um, you've let it burn enough. Uh, I, I I want it over." And within 24 hours, Netanyahu was um, agreeing to an Egyptian brokered ceasefire. The, the White House has incredible influence over this, in large part because of uh, the necessity of American weapons to keep this thing going. Um, so I, I, I think that you can make a case that the military support alone, uh, when you know that it's being used in an indiscriminate, and the president of the United States called it indiscriminate last week, an indiscriminate bombing campaign, and continues to arm it, um, that becomes a joint operation. But on a more granular level, the United States, from the beginning, has been providing Israel with a far more sophisticated level of signals intelligence um, than Israel itself uh, possesses. And the White House has uh, combined its support on an intelligence level and a military hardware level with uh, a political defense of Israel in front of the world. And what you're referring to was a sequence of events that took place over the course of 24 hours two Fridays ago which is that the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, while the United States at the UN was standing alone in shame in the world and vetoing the extraordinary session of the Security Council demanding an immediate ceasefire in Gaza or humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza, uh, Anthony Blinken was circumventing congressional review processes to ram through 13,000 additional tank rounds to Israel at a time when the Biden administration said it was telling Israel to tone down the killing of civilians. I, I don't think you can uh, debate the, 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 the fact, and I think it is a fact, that uh, this is a war of choice that Israel is engaged in, and it's a war of choice that the United States is engaged in. You used an interesting phrase in, in, in your discussion of this uh, in, in your piece. Um, that is that the United States has been providing crucial political cover for the scorched earth campaign to annihilate Gaza. Talk about that, that, that complicity. 
Well, listen, I mean, people people who've been following this closely um, are now familiar with the National Security Council spokesperson, Admiral John Kirby. Um, just one parenthetical on, on Kirby, when I was doing exposés on Blackwater's work with the CIA in Pakistan, John Kirby actually um, basically threatened me by saying that um, if I reported what I was going to, that I'm going to be on thin ice. Um, and in fact, um, I, we referenced that story in the film uh, Dirty Wars, but he is now the chief spokesperson um, for the uh, for the Biden White House on the war. And in the Israeli press, Alan, there was an article the other day in a major daily newspaper um, uh, that that ha that was framed as how John Kirby became Israel's best spokesperson. Um, and so what what we have seen time and again is uh, the president of the United States and his top people from Anthony Blinken to Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, to John Kirby on an almost daily basis, uh, providing uh, justifications for unconscionable war crimes that are being committed by Israel. What I'm specifically talking about is, let's talk about the Al-Shifa Hospital, for example. Al-Shifa Hospital was the most important medical facility in Gaza. It was a hospital that uh, in the 1940s was a British military barracks. It was converted into being a hospital under both the Egyptian and Israeli occupations of the uh, of the Gaza Strip. Um, and in the 1980s, the Israelis did a renovation and expansion of Al-Shifa, and they, they uh, Israeli architects designed an underground tunnel system under Al-Shifa in the 1980s. They constructed tunnels and an underground operating room. And in fact, they hired uh, Hamas in the late 1980s. Hamas was formed in 1987 as security for the construction project so that it wouldn't get uh, attacked. Um, so the Israelis knew because they built them that there were tunnels underneath Al-Shifa Hospital and they knew that there was an underground operating room. The Israelis were claiming when they were laying siege to Al-Shifa Hospital that it was necessary because it represented what was effectively a Hamas Pentagon uh, buried underneath the hospital and that this was what was, was if not the crucial, one of the most crucial uh, places where Hamas was plotting its attacks, including the October 7th attacks. And, you know, many uh, newspapers, television stations that normally lap up uh, Israeli propaganda were very skeptical of this claim. And then Joe Biden and his administration step up and they say, no, 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 no. We have our own intelligence that indicates that this is a significant Hamas uh, command and control place and that they've been holding hostages there. So this puts it on a totally different level. This isn't just Israeli Hasbara, you know, propaganda. This is Joe Biden putting a stamp of ultimate legitimacy of the United States government on a claim that underneath the most important medical facility in Gaza was essentially a, Ham a Hamas Pentagon. Well, the Israelis then raid the hospital and they say, oh, look what we've discovered. They discover, uh, you know, about a dozen Kalashnikovs that were conveniently placed behind an MRI machine <laughs> underneath, you know, in the basement of the hospital. Um, uh, you know, anyone who knows anything about the magnetic uh, uh, qualities of an MRI machine knows that this is insane. Um, there was a, a, a very crisp and clean um, Hamas uh, combat vest there. And then there were a couple of other sort of minor, minor weapons. There was no uh, uh, massive Hamas-style Pentagon underneath there. They then show, oh, we're, now we've discovered the tunnels as their story starts to fall apart. And what they what they showed was a rusty old room that looked like a medical exam room. And the the the, the Hamas, the, the IDF spokesperson is running around calling it Hamas. And he's saying, look, they have a, a an air conditioner down here. Look, there's electrical wires. The things weren't even connected. It looked like no one had even been there since the 1980s, basically. So, you know, is it is it um, beyond the pale that Hamas uh, uh, uses uh, hospitals. Uh, I mean, it's been reported by journalists that Hamas tells them, oh, let's go meet in the hospital, etc." cetera. I, I don't think that's a good thing, but uh, that's different from uh, firing RPGs off the roof of the hospital. And no one has shown any concrete evidence that it was a significant facility at all. And so the Israelis lay siege to it, and they're able to do that because Joe Biden gave them the politi political cover to do it. And, and this has happened over and over and over. Joe Biden said, oh, um, I, don't, I don't trust those civilian death numbers that are coming out of Gaza and diminishes it. He then repeats uh, uh, multiple times, he says it in October, he says it in November, he says it in December, that uh, he saw pictures of beheaded babies. 
It's completely untrue. And we know it's untrue because his own White House said Biden didn't actually see pictures. He's referring to hearing media reports about it. Yet he continues, including 10 days ago, to make that statement. So if if we know that the facts are bad enough on what happened on October 7th, um, if we know that civilians are dying in large numbers, why is the Biden administration finding it necessary to tell lies that even the Israeli government has stopped telling because they're so obscene? That is providing political cover for systematic war crimes and the annihilation of a population uh, where the, the, the vast numbers of people are young, if not outright children or babies. Continuing on with Biden for a moment. Uh, you're not one to hold back, which is obvious in the few minutes we've spent so far. Uh, you call you, you call them as you see them. You assert that everything we know about Joe Biden's 50-year history of supporting and facilitating Israel's worst crimes and abuses leads one to conclusion that Biden wants Israel's wants Israel's destruction of Gaza. Might you go into that longer history that Biden support for a sec? Yeah. I mean, first of all, Joe Biden and Benjamin Netanyahu have been close friends for decades. Um, I mean, that, that's that's just something I think we need to say right off the bat. And Biden has done this little game throughout his relationship with uh, with Netanyahu, where um, he says, you know, BB, I love you, but I don't agree with a damn thing you say. Uh, well, that's not true at all. Um, but, you know, Biden tries to talk in that kind of folksy way. Um, Biden has kind of carved, tried to carve out the issue of illegal Israeli settlements as sort of his main beef with with Bibi. And he's tried to promote this notion that there's this big conflict between the two of them over the issue of settlements. And, and he's doing that to kind of show that he's not just a, a stooge for the agenda of the Israeli far right over the years. But when it comes to actual action, Biden has almost in, almost his entire career in one way or another, supported the expansion of settlements um, on a policy level, but not rhetorically. He's always said he's against it. Other than that, Biden has been all in with Israel on um, on everything that it's done for decades. I'll tell you one story that I find really telling about Joe Biden, and it happens in the 1980s. I mean, first of all, we should remember, Joe Biden comes into the Senate in 1973. As a young senator, he goes over to Israel and he meets with Golda Meir on the eve of the fourth uh, Arab-Israeli war, and Biden has exaggerated how important his presence was to Golda Meir, um, but it was clearly very important to him. And Biden calls himself a Zionist. And he says, you don't have to be Jewish to be a Zionist. I'm a Catholic Zionist. I'm Israel's ca best Catholic friend. And so from that, it was, I think it was a very consequential meeting for Biden with Golda Meir. And I think it's kicked, kicked all of this off. But in 1982, and I'm sure you remember this, Alan, the Israelis launch an invasion of Lebanon. And Ronald Reagan is in the White House. And of course, Reagan was, an, you know, was a staunchly pro-Israel president. Um, but Reagan even was starting to get concerned about, uh, about the killing of civilians in Lebanon and calls the prime minister, Menachem Begin. Um, and now there's declassified files that show this. And Reagan actually said you know, that to Menachem Begin, you're, you're, you're make, manufacturing a Holocaust. He uses the term Holocaust, Ronald Reagan does. U.S. senators, just compare this to now the environment in Washington. U.S. senators at the time when Menachem Begin comes in the summer of 1982 to Washington are grilling him about the killing of civilians. They're furious with him. They're saying this has to stop. You have to do a targeted campaign, very similar to today, except you have powerful U.S. senators do it. So Menachem Begin goes back after these meetings with the senators and he's talking to the press in uh, Tel Aviv. And Begin says, um, yeah, you know, it was tough, a lot of arguments, debates, etc. But this young senator stood up in the meetings, these were private meetings, and gave an impassioned speech saying that, um, you know, if Canada had, uh, had uh, done to the United States what Lebanon has done to Israel, I would support everything you're doing, including the killing of uh, women and children. And that senator was Joe Biden. This is Menachem Begin saying that Joe Biden told him that he would that he supports the killing of women and children to achieve Israel's objectives in, in, in Lebanon, and that he himself would do it also. Joe Biden says that. Menachem Begin says that he told Joe Biden, oh, no, 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 no. This is against our religion, against our values uh, to do this. And we can't accept your way of looking at the killing of civilians. Menachem Begin was a war criminal from the Ergun gangs in the 1940s. You know, so even even notorious war criminals think that uh, that 
Joe Biden goes too far at times. Joe Biden was the was the main defender of when Israel raided the float aid flotilla in 2010 and killed activists, unarmed activists who were trying to break the siege of Gaza. Joe Biden was on television defending them. Joe Biden defended every single Israeli onslaught against Palestinians and and the people of Lebanon throughout his entire 50 years in power. And he's doing it again. And this this may be the last uh, uh, scorched earth campaign that Biden uh, gets to support uh, on behalf of Israel. But it's a horrifying one. And it may result in a mass ethnic cleansing and, and forever change the demographics of Gaza. That seems to be the agenda. Again, you're listening to Jeremy Scahill, war correspondent with The Intercept. The lines are now open at 608-256-2001. If you want to join with a question, a comment, an observation for our guest today, Jeremy Scahill, give us a call. Let's stay with uh, Secretary of State Anthony uh, Blinken for a bit. Um, he speaks with forked tongue. <laughs> that, that is, that is um, his public face apparently something quite in contrast to uh, where he stands on a lot of this. Talk about that a little bit. Well, Antony Blinken from the beginning, I mean, first of all, Antony Blinken is cut from the same cloth on Israel issues as um, uh, as Joe Biden. And, uh, you know, I was speaking recently to the brilliant Palestinian uh, analyst, um, Muin Rabani, and Maureen Rabani was saying that um, yeah. uh, Antony Blinken has never... Yeah, go ahead. You know, Rabani's been in the past month has been uh, on with me a couple of times. He's good, quite good. Remarkable. Yeah, he's yeah, he's 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 one of the best informed analysts um, um, from the Palestinian side, for sure, um, a, uh, offering his perspective. But he was saying to me, you know, that um, Antony Blinken has never met a war in the Middle East that he he didn't fully support and embrace, you know, the war in Libya, et cetera, Iraq, all of those things across the board. But Blinken uh, has has been repeatedly to Israel, and every time he goes, the Israelis, you know, ratchet up the attacks even more. And you know, in the face of of a massive civilian death toll, with Joe Biden looking politically at 2024, um, with concern that um, this is also fracturing the alliance with European countries, because you have Spain, Belgium, Ireland, others really kind of saying we're we're not on board with this anymore. Um, Biden realizes, okay, we have to start. We have to start messaging that we actually care about, you know, the Palestinians. And so Blinken starts this. Uh, you you talk about his forked tongue. You know, he's talking one side of his mouth. He's saying, um, oh, we 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 we're encouraging Israel to do more to uh, help the Palestinians, the suffering civilians of Gaza. And then on the other hand, he keeps promoting this notion that it's a war of self-defense. Um, and so, you, you know, I I don't believe that we should. Uh, that we should judge politicians on their words. I think we should judge them on their actions. And Anthony Blinken really has been the consistent trigger man um, on this. One interesting split, though, Alan, and this is kind of in the weeds, but it, I think it's worth mentioning to your listeners, there does seem to be somewhat of a split camp in the White House right now where you have Bill Burns, who is the CIA director, speaks Arabic, very experienced in the Middle East, and you have um, Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary, who certainly has spent a, a lifetime at war, those two have indicated for a couple of months, if you read the tea leaves on their statements and their presence in, in different places at different moments, seem to be concerned that Israel is trying to draw the United States into a wider war, potentially with Iran, and they don't like it. Um, it's not that they care that, that their concern is about the civilian population of Gaza. I think that they're concerned that there's going to be mission creep that ends up drawing the United States in. And look what we see now with the Yemeni blockade. Now the United States is deploying aircraft carriers, is going to have a 10-nation response to the Houthi um, uh, blockade that has been actually quite effective. The only country that is officially um, participating uh, on the side of Hamas in this war. Um, so, you know, Anthony Blinken, it reminds me of some other eras in U.S. history where the civilian side suits, the white shoe guys, really love the war. They really want they want the blood to, to flow more. And then the guys who are on the kind of intelligence side of it are saying, yeah, let's look at our geostrategic interests, and this may not be the best idea. Again, 608-256-2001, if you want to join with the, in the conversation. I want to stay with the um, propaganda war for a bit. Um, 
that it's consistent with its overarching campaign of mass killings. Um, you, you write at one point, you say that no lie is too obscene to justify the wholesale slaughter of people that Israel's defense minister has called human animals. According to this campaign, there are no Palestinian children, no Palestinian hospitals, no Palestinian schools. The UN is Hamas. Journalists are Hamas. The prime ministers of Belgium, Spain, and Ireland are Hamas. Everything and everyone who dissents in the slightest uh, from the genocidal narrative is also dubbed Hamas. And, but here in this country, and, and I, I assume in Western Europe as well, um, you got to throw in the charge of anti-Semitism, the blanket brush, the broad stroke brush of, well, you're a Hamas sympathizer or you're, you're uh, an anti-Semite. Uh, that charge of anti-Semitism has gotten absurd from where I sit because it is in, now includes groups of Jews such as Jewish Voice for Peace and Not in Our Name. Yeah, and I'm speaking to you from Germany right now where an Israeli uh, Jewish woman who is, I think, in her 80s was arrested twice within a five-day period for holding a sign that um, used the label genocide to describe what Israel was doing in Gaza. And, you know, Germany has atrocious laws on speech. Um, they've, they've basically weaponized laws that were intended uh, to um, ensure that Holocaust denialism and anti-Semitism uh, were, were not going to be tolerated in a, a nation that exterminated six million Jews, millions of communists, Slavic people, etc. I mean, the, so the, 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 the free speech culture in Germany right now is probably the most extreme in the world or certainly in Europe um, in terms of banning um, banning speech uh, that is advocating for the rights of Palestinians or condemning um, Israel's actions. And, you know, what, what I think we've, we're, we're seeing, though, Alan, is that this doesn't work anymore. You know, they, 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 when you use, when, you, when everything becomes anti-Semitism, then it becomes impossible to, to really identify what is actual anti-Semitism. And, you know, while there is certainly, uh, all of us should be deeply concerned about actual anti-Semitism, actual targeting of people because they're Jewish, actual attacks on synagogues, or the, the attempt to murder people because of their religion, obviously anyone with a soul or a heart or a brain is going to oppose that. But to oppose what the state of Israel is doing, uh, which many Jews the world over oppose, to, to oppose that, to attempt to say that that is anti-Semitism, is an attempt to use a really wicked trick to quash dissent. And it's a trick that is, it is a tactic that is used throughout history to try to uh, paint your opponent politically um, or your dissidents as immoral uh, individuals. When in reality, some of the most effective protests that we've seen in the United States have been led by Jewish Americans. And, and now the response is, oh, well, they're, they're self-hating Jews. Oh, yeah, Jews can also be anti-Semitic. I mean, I would argue that Benjamin Netanyahu is making the world less safe for Jewish people because he is weaponizing, without the permission of the global Jewish population, he is weaponizing their religion and, and set, telling the world that what our religion dictates is, is that we need to exterminate their men, women, and children, deny them food, cause uh, health pandemics. I mean, the, the, you know, engage in ethnic cleansing. I mean, if anyone is sort of anti-Jewish uh, uh, in, in this war, it's Benjamin Netanyahu, because he is completely uh, manipulating people's religious faith and trying to turn it into a weapon to justify war crimes. 608-256-2001. Give us a call if you have a question, a comment, an observation for our guest today, Jeremy Scahill. <clears throat> Jeremy, uh, in your piece from December 11th, you assert that it has become indisputably clear over the past two, two months, now longer, of course, that there are no, not actually two sides to this horror show. That without question, per the perpetrators who meted out the horrors against Israeli civilians on October 7th should be held accountable, accountable. But that is not what this collective killing operation is about and journalists should stop pretending it is. We've, 
we've dealt with it somewhat, but take it further. You say any analysis of the Israeli state's terror campaign against the people of Gaza cannot begin with the events of October 7th. We've covered that. But again, I mean, you look, you, you have a caller. I mean, I see the notes uh, here. There's a caller on the line uh, who was asking a question about what might have been a proportionate response to October to the October 7th attacks. Um, it's a totally fair question. Um, uh, Steve is the name of the caller. But the the um, uh, if you want to answer that question, you have to then ask what would be a proportionate response to um, all of Israel's attacks on Gaza? I mean, the, the if if you want to engage in an, in a totally intellectually dishonest conversation, and this is not a criticism of the caller's question, by the way. Um, if you want to engage in a uh, a dishonest conversation about this, then history begins on October seventh. Um, if you actually look at it through the lens of seventy five years of an Israeli campaign to exterminate Palestinians as a population um, in in that part of the world, uh, you you then you start to say, is there, uh, were there moments throughout this when the Palestinians resisted in a way that didn't involve killing Israeli civilians? Absolutely. Look at 2018, look at 2019. What happened in 2018 and 2019? The Palestinian population of Gaza engaged in unprecedented, since the intifadas, um, large scale nonviolent marches every Friday called the Great March of Return, where they would go to their prison camp uh, wall um, and they were doing exactly what everyone says that they should do. You should be nonviolent. And Israel's response was to use these nonviolent demonstrators for target practice. Haaretz, the uh, Israeli newspaper, did an expose about how Israeli snipers held a competition to see who could shoot the most kneecaps of the protesters. And these are some of these are snipers that use their actual names when they when they did interviews in the in the newspaper. So when Palestinians have uh, protested in a nonviolent way, they're gunned down. You ask, what's a proportionate response to October 7th? What rights have the Palestinians ever had to legitimate resistance to litigate their case? What rights have the people of Gaza had to just basically living without Israel controlling the calorie intake of the population or what can go in and out? So what is a pro pro proportionate response to October 7th? What would have been a proportionate response to 9-11? I think that the voices in the United States who were saying at the time that this should be treated as a crime, as the crime that it is, and that there should be uh, individuals who organized it and participated in it. I mean, first of all, Israel killed by some estimates 2,000 um, Hamas and other uh, people who stormed uh, into the kibbutzes and the military base, et cetera, that day. So they already took an enormous death toll. But if you're talking about the, the leadership uh, who organized this, there are standards all over the world for how you handle horrific crimes. But what you don't do is say, okay, we're going to kill a thousand children every week for 10 weeks straight. That's, that's, that's nowhere near proportionate. So you can't, but you can't have a resolution. You can't have a resolution to the events of October 7th if you aren't willing to uh, talk about full Palestinian statehood. Because otherwise, you are empowering groups like Hamas. By stripping the Palestinians of their legitimate rights to self-determination and doing it repeatedly for decades, you are making the rise of armed resistance inevitable and popular because people see no other alternative because they've been shot in their kneecaps when they tried to protest nonviolently. Let's go back to the phones or open up the phone line. David's been waiting for a while. David, hi, you're on the air. Hi, uh, thank you both for this uh, terrific program. Um, uh, I learned a lot. I've been a Palestine solidarity activist for 55 years since I started out in 1968 at UW-Madison, continued in Atlanta and Chicago, and then came back here. Um, okay, I just have a couple of points. One is, um, do you, I've been to a number of demonstrations, and I'm heartened, I'm heartened by the upsurge, especially of younger people and uh, Palestinian-Americans, uh, it, it, but I don't think the slogans, uh, Israel attacks, we fight back uh, from the um, river to the sea. I mean, I understand that there could be a progressive uh, uh, slant on that. But my question is, um, the immediate priority is to um, 
is is for a ceasefire and for humanitarian aid. But but everybody, even Blinken and, and Biden, talk about you know there has to be an overall solution. Of course, they're hip, total hypocrites because they have been acting to prevent uh, a viable two state solution for decades. Um, what what do you think the solidarity movement needs to say in terms of the lo- longer range? Uh, perspective. And then my last point is, I can't help, you know, being a reader of Eric Fromm and Jeff Psychology, that and on some deep psychic level, that um, the, the Israeli right wing is perpetrating a Holocaust as some kind of compensation for, you know, the Holocaust that the Jews suffered at the hands of the Nazis. So the, the thank, victims... Thank you, David. Okay, that, Thank, thank you, Alan. Bye bye. You know, I, I I think you're right. I, I uh, about the um, uh, the number of young people. Um, this this really is um, this is the Iraq War uh, um, social movements. The social movements spurred by the Iraq War, the anti-war organizing spurred by the Iraq War of this generation. And I think it's very heartening to see so many young people. When I spoke recently to the esteemed Professor Rashid Halidi. Um, he he was saying also, because he's also a professor, he teaches, he was saying that this generation that he's seeing are not getting their news from CNN or the New York Times, that they're, you know, they're, they have all kinds of alternative ways that they're absorbing information. And so they're insulating themselves against the kind of manipulation that those of us that are older um, grew up under. And it also means that disinformation spreads faster. But I, I think that that the the uh, the activism that is happening right now is extremely important. But what I would say is, is that this has shattered uh, multiple paradigm, uh, this, this series of events. And we're seeing a split in the world that is pretty unprecedented. And I think that there is, it's going to become untenable. The status quo is no longer going to be tenable. The question is, in the United States, what is going to happen politically? You have APAC that is going to spend the Israeli lobbying entity that is going to spend an enormous amount of money going after members of Congress who came out early for a ceasefire and characterize them as pro Hamas. I think getting involved at a local level politically in the United States um, is really crucial and really important and and demanding answers from uh, anyone running for office on what they're going to do about this. I think Biden's utterly hopeless on this question. I really do. I think he's utterly hopeless. I think the damage is already done. This should ever be forever be stapled to his um, to his legacy. Alan, I know like we only have a little bit of time left, but there's a great question coming up. But I think in the interest, I'm just going to answer it. A caller asked what companies benefit from this war. And I just got uh, yesterday a study from the American Friends Service Committee uh, the, the longtime peace organization, and they've just created on their website, AFSC.org, the companies profiting from Israel's 2023 attack on Gaza. They include AM General, BAE Systems, Boeing, Caterpillar, Colt, Elbit Systems, Emton, Ford, General Dynamics, General Electric, Israel Aerospace Industries, L3 Harris Technologies, Leonardo, Lockheed Martin, MDT. The list goes on and on and on. People should check that out because that's another vector that you can open to get involved with activism. And we've seen this around the world, from Australia to countries in Europe to the United States, trying to blockade um, the uh, the companies that are shipping any kinds of goods to Israel to participate in the scorched earth campaign against the Palestinians of Gaza. Oh, <clears throat> excuse me. Let's stay with the phones for a moment. Wally, hello. You're on the air. You answered my question there, but that was also... As a Madisonian and uh, walkie man, I'm wondering how you would uh, say that we can spend our dollar to do good or to, um, to to tell our local politicians in this moment, not just those that will be elected, that we don't want this uh, genocide committed in our name as Americans. Um, and as someone who has many uh, Jewish friends that are pro-Palestine, um, what can we do? Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great question. And I think, you know, there, there's a real question here. I, I've been monitoring some of the most popular TikTok accounts in Israel. Some of them have hundreds of thousands of, doll- of, of followers. Um, and there's a really grotesque narrative that has emerged during this war um, where even among uh, some sectors of liberal Israeli society, you, you, you see a really visible bloodlust. Um, and 
Um, and I think it's really disturbing. And, you know, it's very controversial in some quarters to discuss the BDS movement, the boycott, divest, sanction. Um, but I think that there is a reasonable and accurate case to be made comparing the actions of the Israeli state toward the Palestinians in both Gaza and the West Bank to apartheid South Africa. And I think we're going to need to start asking our representatives and framing questions about support for an apartheid regime, because th that's what this amounts to. When you have different laws for different ethnic groups, when you have different laws for different religious groups, when you are controlling uh, whether people can eat or not and how much they can eat based on calorie counts and others, um, this sounds a lot like the uh, apartheid white supremacist regime in South Africa, not to mention the regular um, you know, uh, military attacks and putting children in military tribunal systems. That's what Israel does. They arrest, they have thousands of people being held in military uh, court system, um, including an enormous number of children uh, that they are prosecuting in military courts. No other nation in the so-called developed world does this. So I think asking your local officials, not just questions about the Gaza war, when are you going to do something about our support for uh, what is clearly an apartheid regime? And I think that, you know, you also can look at the AFSC's site that they put, which is really excellent. See what entities exist in Wisconsin and, uh, and look if other people are organizing around it. Unfortunately, we're getting uh, uh, short of time, have a lot a lot of other questions. I want to get one last question, then we'll try and squeak our call, last callers in. Um, Jeremy Scale, talk about the notion floated out there by Israeli spokespersons and, and parroted by folks in, in this country that the Palestinians of Gaza could end all of their suffering by overthrowing Hamas. Yeah, I, I mean, okay, the, uh, the, 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 it blows one's mind the stupidity of that line of argument. Go go back through history, and and look at people who are uh, victims of major nation states attacking far less powerful impoverished populations, and blaming it on the impoverished population. I mean, this is um, it, it it's so stupid it almost doesn't even uh, warrant a response. But it is said so often that I think we should actually, um, you know, respond to it. Uh, that that presumes that there was that on October sixth, life was just great for the people of Gaza, because if the if the entire problem is Hamas, which was created in 1987, how do you explain the Nakba of 1948? How do you explain uh, the pogrom against the Palestinians in the West Bank? How do you explain any of what Israel has done? over the past 75 years. The, no, the, you, the norm in Gaza is regular bombings, regular so-called mowing the lawn, a total siege, a total blockade, total control of an apartheid state over what goes in and who goes out uh, of Gaza. So you know, the notion that, oh, we're if you just overthrow Hamas, everything becomes good. Hamas isn't in power in the West Bank. And yet Janine is being raided. Hospitals are being raided. Children are being arrested put into military uh, gulag systems. You have a corrupt Mahmoud Abbas, who is basically an agent of the Israeli occupation in control there, totally incapable of defending the Palestinian people there. Hamas is not the issue when it comes to Palestinians. It's just the latest iteration of armed resistance against the Israeli uh, occupation and Israeli wars of annihilation. So by making Hamas the issue, you're trying to pretend that 75 years of history don't actually exist. And so, you know, it's a, it's a cynical thing. It's like a sociopath in, in a Hollywood movie. That's what Anthony Blinken sounds like, too, because he said this yesterday. These people who say, it can all end. It can all end if Hamas just surrenders and lays down their weapons. It's, it's, and what is the it there? The it is killing a thousand uh, children a week for 10 straight weeks. This is like a sociopath torturing someone. We can make it all end. I won't keep sticking the knife in you if you just confess. And who are the people that they want to confess? Children. It's an overwhelmingly civilian child population. It's insane to make that argument. Jeremy, we, we got like five minutes left in the hour. How, how do we begin to sum up? What have we not touched upon that you think is crucial at this moment? Well, look, I mean, I, I, I really wonder how, uh, how much of Biden's um, 
uh, lip service to Palestinian lives mattering and Gaza civilians mattering has to do with the 2024 election. You know, if you talk to certain Democratic strategists, they they make arguments about, well, the Arab American population is not actually that big. And, you know, yeah, we're going to take some hits, but, you know, we're not we're not so concerned. I mean, they talk like that. We're not that concerned about our our position. Um, I tend to disagree with that. I, I don't because I think that, you know, if you just segregate Arab Americans or Muslim Americans and say, oh, well, we're going to lose a bunch of votes from them. I think you're going to lose a lot of young votes. I was talking to Ralph Nader today and he was saying, and he knows a lot about US elections, and Nader was saying he thinks the biggest factor is a lot of people are just not going to vote um, because of this. So, you know, we're going to get a lot of vote shaming that is going to happen, uh, you know, over the course of the next year. And and if Donald Trump uh, remains a candidate for president, people are going to say, oh, my God, you're going to have this fascist back in, in office. Um, but the reality is the Democrats made a choice to run Joe Biden again. The Democrats are making that choice. The Democrats are giving no one an opportunity. Imagine if they weren't running Joe Biden. Imagine if the candidate was somebody who was a little more alive, um, was not so hardline on, you know, on, on Israel right now that could actually criticize or could actually say, well, you know, we're going to do things a different way. I think the Democrats would have a very solid chance of, of, of winning with someone other than Joe Biden. Um, they made a choice to do this. And, and this is the tired old Democratic National Committee line, which is you, you, you need to vote for us or else. It's going to be your fault. Anything bad that happens is your fault if you don't vote for whatever junk, horrible candidate we put up. And it's basically like they're putting something that is slightly more animated than a potato uh, for office. And it's a slightly more animated version of potato that is complicit in one of the most consequential short-term campaigns of annihilation that we've seen in recent history. Well, Jeremy Scahill, we're right down to the end of the hour. It, go, it always goes too fast. And I want to thank you ever so much for uh, connecting with us today. And, and I know you're a busy guy raising a family and writing and researching and, and so on. Shout uh, out to my to my old professor, uh, Alfred McCoy, too. One of the one of the great minds uh, in the world. And you guys are lucky to have him there in Madison. Oh, yeah, I know still, he listens to this program. He's still at it. I've had him on over the years many times and he is wonderful. I want to thank Jade for producing today. I want to thank Dave for engineering. I want to thank you, our listeners and you, our callers. I'm sorry if we didn't get everybody in on the on the line today, but again, so much to talk about. I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be speaking with you next week. Don't take no prisoners if you can't afford to feed none. Don't start no fights if you cannot predict the outcome. Where you can